Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. This is episode 234. Today's 26 Feb. Yep, 26 Feb. A lot of stories, like 9 or 11, 9, 10, 11. I can't, I'm not can, I can't decide if I'm going to do all of them or not. We'll see, how we're, we'll see where we sit at the 30-minute mark, whether if I keep going or not. So we'll get started right away. 26 Feb, Syncom Twitter, Syncom X, Red Sea Update. 26 Feb, between the hours of 4.45 p.m. and 11.45 AM, local time, U.S. CENTCOM forces destroyed three unmanned surface vessels, two mobile anti-ship cruise missiles, and one one-way attack unmanned aerial vehicle in self-defense. The USV and the ASCM weapons, what does ASCM mean? Anti-ship cruise missile, okay. Anti-ship cruise missile weapons were prepared to launch toward, and the UAV was over the Red Sea. CENTCOM forces identified the USVs and missiles in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen, as well as a UAV over the Red Sea, determined that they presented an imminent threat to merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships in the region and took action. Uh, and you know the rest. These actions are taken to protect freedom of navigation and make international waters safer and more secure for the United States Navy and merchant vessels. It continues on day after day after day. Uh, 24 February, a couple days old, U.S.-U.K. conducts joint strikes against eight Houthi locations in Yemen. This is from USNI. The United States and the United Kingdom, with support from allied nations, struck 18 targets on Saturday, two days ago, the Department of Defense announced. The two countries were supported by Australia, Bahrain, Canada, Denmark, the Netherlands, and New Zealand, focused on eight locations in Yemen that the Department of Defense said held underground weapon storage facilities, drone systems, air defense systems, radars, a helicopter, and missile missile storage facilities, according to a news release. And here's something from the release. These precision strikes are intended to disrupt and degrade the capabilities that the Houthis use to threaten global trade, naval vessels, and the lives of innocent mariners in one of the world's most critical waterways. Uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, had a statement, and he said, the United States will not hesitate to take action as needed to defend lives and the free flow of commerce in one of the world's most critical waterways. We will continue to make clear to the Houthis that they will bear the consequences if they do not stop their illegal attacks, which harm Middle Eastern economies, cause environmental damage, and disrupt the delivery of humanitarian aid to Yemen and other countries. Pentagon officials have previously, previously told reporters that the United States strikes are meant to degrade Houthi capabilities and not destroy them. Whatever that means. All right, on to Israel. Uh, let's see. This is from 25 Feb. Times of Israel, Netanyahu, total victory in Gaza will be weeks away once the Rafa operation is launched. Are they going to launch the Rafa operation? Will the hostage deal come first? Will they do an offensive during Ramadan? 
None of these questions will be answered during this episode. But this is what we got. Uh, an Israeli military operation in Gaza, southernmost city of Rafah, could be delayed somewhat if a deal for a weeks-long truce between Israel and Hamas is reached. This is from the Prime Minister Netanyahu on Sunday, but claimed total victory is weeks away once the incursion begins. Speaking to Margaret Brennan on CBS's news, CBS News, says, Face the Nation, Netanyahu confirmed a deal is in the works but did not provide detail. Israeli media reported that mediators are making progress on an agreement for a temporary ceasefire and release of dozens of hostages held captive in Gaza, as well as Palestinian security prisoners held by Israel. Several Israeli media outlets citing unnamed sources said the war cabinet tacitly approved it. Before I go on, uh, this article is from Sunday, yesterday. Today is Monday. A lot changed in those 24 hours, so keep that in mind. Talks resumed on Sunday at Qatar, at, in Qatar at the specialist level. Egypt runs Al O'Hara TV reported, citing an Egyptian official as saying further discussions would follow in Cairo with the aim of achieving a temporary ceasefire and release. A little bit about it, what people think they know. Multiple reports have indicated that the outline includes the release of the first phase of some 40 hostages in Gaza, including women, children, female soldiers, elderly and ill abductees amid a pausing of fighting of some six weeks. Six weeks is a long time. It also includes the release of Israel, by Israel, of course, of hundreds of Palestinian terror convicts and a redeployment, in quotes, of Israel troops within Gaza, but not a complete withdrawal as Hamas has previously demanded. The outline would also reportedly see Israel enable the return of Palestinian women and children to northern Gaza, from where 100, for hundreds of thousands evacuated during the fighting, and which Israel has kept off from the rest of the enclave. Meanwhile, Israel is developing plans for expanding its offensive against the Hamas terror group uh, to Rafah on the Israel, I'm sorry, on the Gaza-Egypt border. And we've been talking about that for a few weeks now. I think the Israel is actually in Rafah from time to time. Uh, they're using air strikes on it also from time to time. Uh, more than half the territory's population, 2.3 million, have sought refuge in Rafah. Humanitarian groups warn of a catastrophe with Rafah, the main entry point for aid. And the United States and other allies have said Israel must avo avoid harming civilians. I think Israel knows that. Israel's political and military leaders have said the operation will not begin until the safety of noncombatants has been ensured. Back to Netanyahu, and we're done with this article. Uh, Netanyahu has said we will convene the cabinet this week to approve the operational plan for action in Rafah, including the evacuation of civilians. Here's some quotes from the prime minister. Once we begin the Rafah operation, the intense phase of fighting is weeks away from completion, not months. Netanyahu told CBS, if we don't have a deal, we'll do it anyway. It has to be done because total victory is our goal and total victory isn't within reach. Prime Minister Netanyahu said four of the six remaining Hamas battalions are concentrated in Rafah. We've, we've talked about several times. Speaking to CBS, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Netanyahu was asked, quote, about growing distrust of you personally by Congress and the Biden White House. Uh, here's like a question they asked. She asked, Brennan, when your closest ally is telling you things like, this and telling you you need to reconsider strategy isn't that worth considering question mark and of course 
Prime Minister Netanyahu had this to say, a lot of things that we were told by our best of friends initially turned out not to be true. They said you can't enter the ground war without having enormous complications. They said you cannot enter Gaza City. You cannot go into tunnels. It will be a terrible bloodbath. All that turned out to be not true, he said. Our soldiers are in the tunnel networks. We don't have to take apart hundreds of kilometers of tunnels. We are taking apart the missile production factories that are underground, the command and control headquarters, the computers that are there, the money that is there, the weapons that are there, the ammunition that is there. We are doing that methodically, he continued. And that's where I'll stop right there. And he's right. Um, There is no better urban fighters in the world than the IDF. Bar none. Zero. They are the best. Now, the Russians are, are probably good, got some experience. The Ukrainians are probably good, too. But as far as precision and violence and coordination, I, the IDF is it. They're fighting above ground and below ground at the same time. They're calling in precision strikes. Uh, they're, at times, looks like they're almost hand-to-hand sometimes, so they're, they're doing it all. And that's it. What more can you say? Moving on. Uh, Gallant. Of course, he's a defense minister, Yoav Gallant. Israel will include strikes on Hezbollah even during potential Gaza truce. This is from yesterday, Emmanuel Fabian. Defense minister Yoav Gallant said Israel would increase its strikes on Hezbollah in response to daily attacks in northern Israel, including amid a potential ceasefire in Gaza. Of course, uh, I saw the news today. Israel got pounded with like 60 missiles from the north. Not part of this article. I'm just throwing that in passing. So here's a quote from Gallant. We are planning to increase the firepower against Hezbollah, which is unable to find replacements for the commanders we are eliminating, Gallant said Sunday during a visit to the IDF Northern Command in Safed, S-A-F-E-D. The defense minister emphasized that the strikes on Hezbollah would continue even if Israel signs a hostage deal with Hamas. Uh, Here's a quote. In the event of a temporary truce in Gaza, we will increase the fire in the north and will continue until the full withdrawal of Hezbollah from the border and the return of residents to their homes, he said, referring to some 80,000 Israelis displaced by Hezbollah attacks. The goal is simple, to push Hezbollah back where it should be, either by an agreement or by force. Israel has warned it will no longer tolerate the presence of Hezbollah along the Lebanon frontier, where it could attempt to carry out an attack similar to the massacre committed by Hamas on 7 October. A failure of international diplomacy to force Hezbollah away from the border would necessitate, necessitate I'm sorry, an Israeli offensive, the country has said. And I'll stop right there. So again, Israel is not playing games. Uh, this one is an interesting article from 25 Feb yesterday. This is from Jerusalem Post. Palestinian government's could resign within days, one new one formed by week's end. This is, anyway, let's see what you think here. In an unprecedented development, Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mohammed Shatayeh, I'm sorry, I'm messing his name up, uh, government could resign within two days in hopes of creating a new technocratic Palestinian government. It was reported early on Sunday, yesterday. According to Sky News Arabia, Palestinian sources are reporting on the possibility of a, that the government of the PA, headed by the guy I just said, could resign within days and, its head, and, its, and in its stead form a new professional technocratic one before the end of the week. 
I'm not sure what a technocratic is. I think it's somebody like, I'm not even going to guess. But I think I have an idea, but I just can't express it. Moving on. These developments come in light of news last week that Hamas had approved the formation of a technocratic government whose mission is to rebuild Gaza and restore security to the Strip after the war. Sky News Arabia has reported that there are indications from within that Hamas has agreed to the formation of a technocratic government. I guess there's no political affiliation, I suppose, like a city manager on steroids. Additionally, the reports state that the new government will not be affiliated with any Palestinian political party. There you go. Where professional independents will take over government management during an initial transition phase until elections can be held at a later time. And then who gets elected? Who knows? Uh, Sky News Arabia has also indicated it's reporting that initial acceptance of Hamas to join the Palestinian Liberation Organization, provided that there will be an eventual outcome of a Palestinian state according to the 1967 boundaries. Hmm. Much of this whisperings are a result of meetings held by the Hamas delegation in Cairo two months ago where discussions were held regarding the rebuilding and management of the Gaza Strip post-war. This is where it gets interesting. The parties in advance debated the establishment of Palestinian committees as the first step to rebuilding the PLO, removing Mohammed Abbas from Palestinian politics, and establishing a government of technocrats in the PA. Removing Muhammad Abbas from Palestinian politics, I think it would be easier said than done, but I don't know. Uh, other sources have reported on these developments. The Washington Post reported on a plan to establish a Palestinian state, which is being formulated by the United States and other Arab states. This plan would see the creation of a Palestinian state and peace-building efforts between Israelis and Palestinians. According to some sources, it could be availed in the coming weeks. And of course, we know what the Israelis' position on this is very strongly against a two-state right now unless there are direct negotiations without preconditions between Israel and Palestinians. That's it. That's been made clear many times. Uh, that's it. One more story from Israel. This is a, a mortar story, and if I had my way, we would do a mortar story every episode. Well, maybe not every episode. Maybe every other episode. How about that? Uh, the Iron Sting, an exclusive look at Israeli's new precision mortar. Who said mortars are dead? Not me. Uh, Seth Fransman breaking defense today, 26 Feb. Four months in Israel's war in, against Hamas in Gaza. A number of new technologies and platforms have been used by the IDF, among them the Iron Sting precision mortar, first unveiled in 2021, but not used in combat until recently. So first of all, there's more to life than UAVs and loitering munitions in modern war. That's number one. And there's more to life than mobile artillery. Mortars are still alive and well. And is there a better name than Iron Sting for a mortar system? I think not. The Iron Sting Precision Mortar. During a visit to a military base in central Israel, Breaking Defense received a rare look at the 120 millimeter. Wow. Mortar up close, along with Lieutenant Colonel Cohen, an IDF officer who helped develop it. Here's a quote. This is one of a kind in the world, Cohen said about the weapon, which the IDF says has a level of precision usually reserved for air-launched missiles. Uh, but built in the kind of mortar that every soldier can learn how to operate. That means it can be used against specific targets in the kind of complex environments the IDF is facing in Gaza and potentially foregoing the need for calling in an airstrike. That's what I'm talking about, what I said earlier, about complex environments like urban terrain which the IDF is 
you know, they're uh, superior. They're superior at it, basically. And now they got this new mortar, supposedly, that is accurate as an airstrike. Uh, operationally, the Iron Sting replaces a concept of mortars as a statistical, easy for me to say, statistical weapon where you fire a number of them near a target and hope to neutralize it, like an area fire weapon, right? Instead, it turns into a precision-guided weapon, one that is cheaper to equip and deploy than air-launched effects, right? Um, here's, the, here's the good thing about mortars, in case you didn't know. Many of you probably know this already. Mortars is a, is a maneuver commander's pocket artillery. The artillery kind of belongs to him, but it doesn't. It's in support. It's in support of the maneuver commander. But the maneuver commander owns the mortars. They're his soldiers. They belong to him. He trains them. He equips them. The ammunition is his. Uh, so that's why mortars are very responsive to a maneuver commander. That's what makes them great. And now the, this precision mortar is probably even better. Uh, operationally, I already said that. The launcher can be mounted on a vehicle such as an M113 or a Humvee. The version seen by breaking defense was on a Humvee and had an intuitive and user-friendly interface with a joystick that lowers the mortar barrel so forces can quickly deploy it. The mortar is plugged into a computer on the Humvee where the mortar's internal systems receives the data it needs for the mission. Once launched, it powers up, expands guidance fins, uses GPS and a laser, seeker to fly towards the target the operator can choose to have the round explode with a proximity sensor meaning it in the air just above the target or penetrate a target and then explode the latter can be useful to penetrate a building and strike a specific room it can penetrate through a wall or ceiling cohen said uh, lieutenant colonel cohen noted that the mortar has a fail safe if the computer analyzes the trajectory and is not going to hit the target the munition is neutralized and it lands as a dud, means it won't explode, limiting damage to personnel and property. Elements of the Moglon Special Forces have used the Iron Sting for the first time operationally on 22 October, striking a Hamas rocket launching site. Uh, the Moglon unit has been operating with the IDF's 98th Division, which includes paratroops and commandos in Han Yunus since early December. Soldiers fighting in Gaza have often said that Hamas fighters pop out of tunnels or buildings with weapons for only a short period of time, requiring rapid response. If we get the mission data in less than a minute, we can close the loop against the terrorists, Cohen said, a much faster time than having to call in an airstrike. Again, it's responsive to the commander because the commander owns them. Cohen said the troops have been satisfied with it and they always ask for more, but it's unknown what stockpiles the weapon actually looks like. The IDF did not provide details on the number of iron sting weapons in use or the number of mortars fired so far with the system. The cost of unit per the munition was not provided. The IDF did not elaborate on what other units the mortar has been deployed with. So there you go. And 120 is a heavy mortar. It's not light at all. That's why you're moving around on a vehicle. All right, enough of mortars. Uh, should we go to Ukraine? Before we go to Ukraine, let's go to, what am I doing on time, 19 minutes? Let's go to Hungary. Hungary's parliament ratifies Sweden's NATO bid. That's from today. Uh, Justin Spike AP by way of defense news. Hungary's parliament voted Monday, today, to ratify Sweden's bid to join NATO, ending more than 18 months of delays that frustrated the alliance as it sought to expand in response to Russia's war in Ukraine. So that's 32 now. Unanimous countries, unanimous support among NATO members is required to admit new countries 
and Hungary is the last of the 31's alliance members to give us backing since Turkey ratified the request last month. So now there are 32. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen said his country was now leaving 200 years of neutrality and non-alignment behind us. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm neutral on it. Uh, it is a big step. We must take that seriously, but it also, but it is also a very natural step we are taking. He continued, NATO membership means that we found a new home within a large number of democracies which work together for peace and freedom. Uh, that's the Ulf Christensen, Swedish prime minister. Uh, addressing lawmakers before the vote, Orban, who is the boss of Hungary, said that Sweden and Hungary's military cooperation and Sweden's NATO accession strengthens Hungary's security. Uh, Jens Stoltenberger, who's a NATO secretary general, he had a comment. He told the AP that the vote makes NATO stronger, Sweden safer, and all of us more secure. Stoltenberg said that Sweden brings with it a capable armed force and a first-class defense industry, which is very true. And it is spending at least 2% of the natural gross domestic product on defense, which is the NATO target level. Sweden does have good defense industry. Uh, on Monday, Viktor Orban criticized Hungary's European Union and NATO allies for pressuring his government in recent months to move forward on bringing Sweden into the alliance. Here's a quote. Hungary is a sovereign country. It does not tolerate being dictated by others, whether it be the content of, of his decisions or their timing, he said. That's it on that. Hungary. Uh, what, where do I go next? What am I doing on time? 20 minutes? I got a few more minutes. Uh, this is what I talked about in the last episode. Ukraine war turns two lessons learned and what comes next. Uh, Breaking Defense did a series of articles by domain. Uh, I'm not going to read it again, but there's, you know, air domain, land domain, uh, uh C domain, the other two. We did land last time, and I wanted to do this one. This is not really a domain, is it? It's geopolitics, Washington chaos, European drive. This is from Tim Martin. Uh, on the, so I'll kind of do the heading, and then I'll go into the article. Ukraine war turns two, lessons learned, and what comes next. On the two-year anniversary of the war, which was a couple of days ago, the Breaking Defense team has assembled a series of pieces on the state of conflict across multiple domains. What could come in year three and what lessons the United States have learned? So if you want to check this out, this Breaking Defense, it's like three or four articles. I did one. And I'm doing another one. I don't know if I'll do another one. I might. Maybe not. Uh, this one's from Tim Martin, who we enjoy on this podcast. Geopolitic, geopolitics, Washington Chaos, European Drive, a DOD fact sheet of what the United States has sent to Ukraine shows the sheer scale of combat over two years, more than 2,155,000,000 mm shells, 10,000 Javelin missiles, 250 Bradley, Abrams, Stryker, and Howitzer vehicles. Okay, that's two years, everything I just read. And there's more than that, of course. Go to DOD, you can read the fact sheet for yourself. That's in two years. What does the next two years look like? Uh, moving on. And yet, perhaps the biggest challenge facing Ukraine's government right now is wavering support from Washington where desperately needed funding has been tied up for months in Congress. When the Ukraine city of Adevka fell last week, the White House specifically linked the collapse to congressional inaction. President Joe Biden, who's been very, who has been pushing supplemental for Ukraine aid, told reporters, quote, 
the idea that they that they Ukraine is running out of ammunition and we walk away. I find it absurd. I find it unethical. Now, I don't know. This is me talking about the article. I don't know if you can blame Congress for a day of falling. That might be a bridge too far. But I will say this. President's right about this. It certainly didn't help him any. How about that? Uh, moving on. The fall of Adeyevka, the first major territory loss to Russia since last May, has only underlined the challenges now facing Kiev's military strategists who may need to begin deciding where to parcel munitions. In Europe, officials remain fully committed to the end goal of Ukraine winning the war, but they're increasingly fearful of how that happens without unconditional United States support. Still, there have been unmistakable increases to defense spending across Europe since the war in Ukraine started, leading to several steady series of approvals for lucrative military aid packages to support Ukraine and new weapons contracts with industry to restock equipment inventories. In line with this unprecedented funding, NATO expects European allied defense spending to reach a combined total of $380 billion this year. Now, keep in mind, the United States, and not in the article, the United States spends over $800 billion in a year, right? So all these European nations, I don't know how many there are. If there's 32 NATO members, we'll take out Canada and the United States. That means there's 30 NATO members spending $380 billion, I guess. Uh, anyway, they're spending $380 billion this year, backed by 18 member states hitting the 2% GDP spending target. So out of 32, 18 are actually making the target. Such a seismic shift in just two years is notable, but still lags on a like-for-like basis, some way behind Russia, which has moved into a war-footing economy. Moscow's natural, national budget is currently being used for military spending and is soon expected to reach 7.5% of the country's GDP. Uh, let's see. I'm going to end up right. I'm going to end it right here. As year three of the conflict gets underway, it seems Moscow's strategy is a simple one. Keep grinding down Ukraine inch by inch and hope Kiev exhausts its supply of both bullets and political backing across the globe. So I heard something. This is not the article that I guess the big plan for Kiev this year is to dig in, establish some defenses, restock up, keep the wolves at the door. Hopefully, the United States starts funding them again and everybody else in all these rounds that the production is increasing and then maybe do an offensive next year, 2025. I guess that's it. Who knows? Or maybe they can uh, have a little diplomacy and start negotiating and figure this out. Uh, there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. Is it a time for peace in Ukraine? Moving on. Uh, Ender Bish, 23 Feb, Defense Post, Canada joined Czech initiative to buy 80,000 shells for Ukraine. While we're talking about Ukraine, Canada has signed an agreement with the Czech Republic to explore urgent artillery shell procurement for Ukraine. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Czech Republic president says he knows where a bunch of rounds are. I think I'm paraphrasing, of course. I know where 500,000 rounds are. I just need the money to get them or something like that. Um. Details are being worked out. However, Ottawa could invest 30 million Canadian dollars or 22 million U.S. dollars for the Czech initiative. CBC News re revealed citing sources. Prague has identified non-EU sources for eight 800,000 shells, including 500,000 155 millimeter rounds. Czech President Pavel proposed a plan at Munich Security Conference last week 
urging partner nations to help secure financing. I know where the rounds are. Uh, CBC News quoted Canadian Defense Minister Bill Blair as saying, I've entered into the more memorandum of understanding with one of our European allies, the Czech Republic, with respect to perhaps acquiring munitions that they currently have in their possession that will enable us to make them more available rapidly to Ukraine as we ramp up our own production. Meanwhile, the Canadian government reportedly has not ramped up munition production after receiving proposals from two domestic manufacturers one and a half years ago. According to CBC News, allies fear the Czech proposal might provide Ottawa with a wiggle room to further defer investment decision in domestic munition production. Bomb factories are not very popular in Canada, or at least 155 millimeter factories. Canada requires an estimated investment of 400 million Canadian dollars, 297 million to boost domestic production of NATO standard 155 millimeter shells. It currently produces 5,000 155 millimeter shells per month, which I don't think is that bad. Canada not that doesn't have that big of a military. Uh, we're looking hard at making investment in Canada to increase munition production. The current ammunition situation is unacceptable in Ukraine. It's un- unacceptable for NATO. Unfortunately, it's something we've got to fix. CBC News quoted Blair as saying, who identified supply chain issues as one of the main reasons for the delay. And again, Bill Blair is a Canadian defense minister. Uh, meanwhile, Blair announced Monday that Canada would send 800 Sky Ranger R-70 multi-mission drones to Ukraine, costing around $95 million Canadian dollars or $70.3 million U.S. dollars. 29 minutes. Do I got one more story? Uh, yes. I think. Should we go to Italy? Hmm, where should we go? I'm still thinking here. I got a bunch of stuff. We'll just go, we'll go to Italy maybe next time. So armored vehicles and Patriots sent to Ukraine without solid sustainment plan, says the Pentagon IG. Ashley Roquet, 22 Feb. Older story, but it's an Ashley Roquet story, so you know it'll be a good one. This is basically the Pentagon IG uh, beating everybody up. Uh, the Pentagon delivered a slew of ground weapons, ground, ground combat vehicles and air defense systems to Ukraine, which we just talked about earlier. Without a comprehensive sustainment plan, it created potential risk for both nations, the Department of Defense Inspector General wrote in a pair of new reports. The DOD IG penned several reports in recent months pointing toward roadblocks or potential ones in the flow of weapons to Ukraine, and this week released two more, one on the DOD sustainment plan for Bradley Stryker M1 Abrams main battle tanks, and a similar one focused on Patriot battery deliveries. In both cases, the IG determined the Pentagon and the U.S. Army to deliver the weapons without, first, without firm sustainment and training plans in place. Here's a quote from the report. Providing weapon systems to Ukraine without a plan to ensure sustainment creates additional risks. Specifically, Ukrainian armed forces may not be able to independently sustain U.S.-provided Bradley Strikers and Abrams without a sustainment plan in the future. No kidding. When it comes to those armored vehicles, the inspector general noted that the department did provide spare part package packages along with personnel and facilities to conduct field level maintenance through the end of 24. However, lawmakers have not yet approved a 24 spending bill and additional supplemental with funding Ukraine remains in limbo. Beyond 24, the department acknowledges it does not have an armored vehicle statement in place related to 
spare parts, consumables, ammunition, support equipment, recommended depot level training for Ukraines, personnel who could provide the depot level maintenance, and facilities for depot level maintenance. The DODIG spotted similar problems with sustainment training for those Patriot batters provided to Ukraine. The department did provide Ukrainian soldiers with basic operation and maintenance training at Fort Sill and in Poland, along with initial package of spare parts and established remote maintenance capabilities via a 12-month contract. However, DOD and Army officials did not establish additional training for advanced life cycle maintenance tasks, a process for anticipating sustainment on a dependable supply system for ordering, shipping, receiving replacement part, the inspector general wrote. Huh. Almost done. Pentagon press secretary deputy Sabrina Singh told reporters today that the department welcomes these reports and that they shed light on potential improvements, but noted the unique circumstances of this war, one that the United States is funneling billions of dollars toward, but is not sending troops into when I read that, I'm going to be funny here. I'll try to be. It reminded me of this that uh, that episode of Sopranos. You guys see the Sopranos, where Pauly uh, has somebody killed, but it was the wrong person, and he's he says Pauly says he takes full responsibility, but he didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> uh, I just thought about that when I read that line. Should I continue? Uh, I'll fi- I'll finish. We're certainly aware that we we could be doing more. And we've been saying everything from the beginning that we need to ensure that Ukrainians have every tool available to maintain these systems. Now, I will say in defense of the United States that you send Bradleys and you send Abrams and you send Strikers and you send Patriot stuff over there. You know, within 18 months, and funding's kind of unsure, it's going to be hard for the Ukraine to fix all that stuff anyway. Plus, all the other countries are sending stuff over there. It's got to be a nightmare for the maintainers over there trying to figure out how to teach these mechanics on what to fix because their their force is literally cobbled together. And I'll say one more thing and I'll be done. 34 minutes. Um, I used to, in a former life, I used to travel around and help train soldiers of other countries. And... uh now, I'd only do it for a couple of years, but my point is we would go around and, and we would teach maneuver stuff, infantry stuff, and they would like that, you know, how to shoot, how to move, communicate, all that, all that stuff, different environments, woods, urban, and they appreciated that stuff, but that's not what they wanted. What, they, what these armies that we worked with wanted, they wanted logistics. How, how, all those things that was just mentioned, where is it at? Uh, bear with me here. Right. This is what they wanted. These 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 other these other countries' armies, they wanted to do advanced life cycle maintenance tasks, a process for anticipating sustainment, a dependable supply system to order, to ship, to receive parts, to have mechanics fix the parts. That stuff is hard. Logistics is hard. Maintaining a, a mechanized force is hard. It's not easy stuff. Anybody can learn to shoot, move, and communicate. Not any, but you know what I'm saying. It's it can be taught in twelve weeks, fifteen weeks. It takes a lifetime to learn, but you can learn the basics and have it effective in six months, right? You can be effective. Not so much with with, uh, supply and logistics, maintenance, and sustainment. That's 
That's a different animal right there. You need professionals that know how to do that stuff. And that's what's very hard to do. And it's very hard to do in, you know, in two years during combat. So you got to give the DOD a little bit of slack. Plus the funding. There's no budget. There's no budget for this year. They still haven't figured that out. So good report. I got it. The IG's doing their job, but you don't have to poke your finger in everybody's pie all the time. And I think with that, I'll stop. Uh, what am I doing on episode 234? Yeah. Episode 234 is in the books. Thank you very much for listening and good night.